Hello and welcome to United's podcast and sermon archives. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go online to our website at fergusunited.org or follow us on our Facebook page. Thank you very much and we hope you enjoy this week's message. God bless. Samuel, can you grab an extra chair and set this up on the chair? We're going to just any any chair. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to continue our look at the Ten Commandments. I'm going to read the passage that they're found in, Exodus chapter 20. Verses 1 through 17, we'll do a little bit of review, and then we're going to launch and uh, pick up at number 6. Amen. Shout unto God. Exodus 20, starting at verse 1, says, And God spake, so who said these things? God did. God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of bondage, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness or any thing that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath day of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy maidservant, nor thy, thy man... I did the same thing last week. Thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And so, last week, we made our way through the first five commandments. So we we walked our way through... Thou shalt not have any gods before me. We, we visited some scripture where God said He was God alone. There was no one beside Him. He didn't know any other gods. We're, we're not supposed to worship any. We did focus in on that word before me. 
That doesn't mean that we can have other gods as long as they're not important as Jesus. It's, it's just like I'm standing before you in, in His presence. We don't have any other gods. I mean, He's, he's all-encompassing. It said the second one that we should have no graven images, which is very similar, but it speaks to this carving out of things that are to replicate. We examine the actions of the children of Israel while God was giving these commandments. They were in the valley taking gold and fashioning it into a calf and saying, this is God. This is the God that brought us out of Egypt. They were still attributing the worship to the Lord, but they had formed an image that, that was supposed to represent God. And he said, that's, that's not appropriate. Um, we spent a little bit of time talking about not taking the Lord's name in vain because this is something that happens so casually. I would venture to say, I said last week, I'll say again, I think it's probably one of the most transgressed of the Ten Commandments. People so flippantly use the name of Jesus. They use it as a swear word. They use it when bad things happen. They use it as a joke. They casually use it when good things happen without ever really wanting to call upon God. They just throw out the name of Jesus. Or um, We talked about some of the things, OMG, OMG. Well, God said you better be careful. In fact, he, he didn't just say, Thou shalt not take the Lord God's, thy God's name in vain. He said, I will not hold the people that do guiltless. So this isn't just a small matter. God takes this seriously. Um, we talked about the Sabbath, the importance for rest. Uh, touched very lightly on the fact, but it is important for us to remember as New Testament, New Covenant believers, our Sabbath is found in the rest of the Holy Ghost. We finished with honor thy father and thy mother. I guess that's half fitting for leading into Father's Day. We're going to pick up now on number six. It says, thou shalt not kill. That seems to be a pretty straightforward commandment, wouldn't you say? Thou shalt not kill. Is there anyone here that, that disagrees with that commandment? Everyone's in agreement with that commandment. Okay. It's hard to. Uh, I don't disagree with. I mean, I, it depends. Okay. I mean, there are situations and circumstances for which it's necessary. Okay. So, and this is where we're going to go. Because we all read this and we say, thou shalt not kill it. Easy to understand, of course, thou shalt not kill. And yet we also read in our scripture and in our Bible of a God who sent his people into war. Now he said in the, in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. And then he said, you're going to go into that land and you're going to kill every living thing. Down to the animals. So God must be bipolar. Great. Now, now we don't know what to expect out of God. We could look at scenarios and situations and we could say, thou shalt not kill and sit in church on a Sunday morning. And that could be such an easy thing to just pass right by. But then we get to talking about tonight when you're at home in bed and an intruder breaks in with the intentions of harming your family. Well, thou shalt not kill. We have to be careful and just 
grabbing a hold of something and moving along so quickly. Um, we could talk about capital punishment. Thou shalt not kill. Yet we see capital punishment instituted in Scripture. So does God command His people to break His commands? No. So there's, there's something here. There, there's some kind of disconnect if this is where our understanding lies. If you were to read any other translation, who here is, is looking at a translation other than King James? Okay? And that, that's healthy. King James is very much so accurate. But this word in every other translation would be murder. Thou shalt not murder. The key to reconciling these things is found in the original language. The Hebrew word, I'm probably going to butcher it, it's R-A-T-Z-A-H, which is associated with murder, is what's being translated here. The Hebrew language also has a general word for killing, which is harag, H-A-R-A-G. So just like we have two different words, we, can, we say kill, and it, it's all-encompassing, it's, it's very broad, but we also have the word murder. And when we say the word murder, we understand that there's more being communicated than just kill. I go out and hunt, and I, I might kill a deer. I don't, in casual conversation, say, yeah, I was out the other day, and I murdered a deer. Because that's a stronger word. That's a word that communicates forethought and the senseless taking of life. The command in reference is in reference to murder. Murder defined, that original word is defined as unjustified taking of life. Unjustified taking of life. I'll, I've spent a great deal of time on a personal level wrestling with this command. Um, I'll tell you, I personally have a permit to carry a pistol. Now, I obtained that permit because I had this crazy idea that I wanted to go bear hunting with my bow and arrow, and I wasn't that confident in my bow and arrow, so I wanted to have the ability to carry a sidearm with me. But in going through the, the classes and going through the motions of obtaining this permit, you have to ask some very difficult questions. If I decide one day to, to take this firearm with me out into the community, am I going to ever use it to take another human life? Am I going to, to use it against a person and shorten their time on earth? And I'm, I'm full disclosure going to share my opinions with you. I challenge you to wrestle with the Scriptures I don't have time to go into to the text that swayed me both ways, but here's the decisions I've come to. This is defined by the original language, murder is the unjustified taking of life. Now, again, full disclosure, I don't think I've carried my weapon in public in years. And if I do, I don't want anyone to know about it. Um, but anyways, if, if I'm in a situation, if I have a, a weapon, it's not even a, a gun, any means to take a life on me, it's within my power, and I'm in a situation 
where a deranged individual comes into a public area and begins to murder other people. I believe I would stop that individual. Because I don't think at that point, my opinion, I don't think at that point it's an unjustified taking of life. As a Christian, as a child of God, we have to weigh these things in terms of eternity. Eternity. And this is, this is why it's such a hard thing to wrestle with. If I take a weapon and I use it on this individual that, that's wreaking havoc, he's in the middle of committing atrocious sin. Okay? When I end his life on this planet, eternity begins for this individual. So I'm not going to sugarcoat it in any way, shape, or form. In that situation, outside of, of God operating out of his norm, that person's eternity is sealed in hell. That's a weighty matter. However, the, the multitudes of people that he is murdering in the moment are also not living for God. And so there are who knows how many souls that are being sent into eternity lost in that moment. I can flip that around and I can tell you that if I'm by myself and I'm walking to my car in a parking lot somewhere and, and somebody comes up and they have a weapon and, and it's them or me, it's them or me, I've made a different decision. Because I'm right with God. And if they, if they decide to take my life in that moment, I'm going to instantaneously be in the presence of my Savior. But if I retaliate or if I act first and I were to, to take their life, even though maybe it could still be qualified as justified in the sense of defense and, and maybe a court of law would, would lift that penalty off of me, that person's not right with God. I rob them of any future ability to repent. I'm just telling you, I've, I've wrestled with this because there is a difference in killing and murdering. And I would challenge you as we go through this and we read it, you, you really need to think about it. Because we don't want to just on the surface level say, oh yeah, thou shalt not kill, we believe that. And then like you said, Randy, well wait a minute. What about this? What about that? What? You need to know where you stand. You need to really wrestle with the Scriptures. Further than that, those are scenarios that 99% of us will never face. Jesus amplifies this particular command in His Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. <clears throat> but I say unto you, whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. So Jesus is standing before the multitudes and he says, listen, I want to address the, the sixth commandment. You know, you've been told ever since the time of Moses, ever since I, I delivered my law into stone, that, that thou shalt not kill. 
But let me, let me really explain to you what I'm trying to get to. He says, if you're angry with your brother without cause. So now we're not talking about the unjust taking of life. We're talking about unjust anger. Unjustifiable anger. Racism and bigotry. And, and I'm angry with people, and, and now i got a problem without calls. I'm in danger of the same judgment. He said, if you say unto them, Raka, which is <laughs> kind of funny, but you say unto them, you empty-headed idiot, <laughs> you're in danger of the council. How, how flippantly we say things sometimes. We, we say worse than that when they cut us off in traffic. Or they get our order wrong at the fast food restaurant. Moron. Idiot. Jesus says, hey, wait, you better be careful. You start saying things like that, now, now you're in danger of the council. That means you're going to have to answer for these things. If you say unto them, thou fool. Oh, that's the bad. I said, I just called him a fool. It's a big deal. I ain't no big deal. Fool. You're in danger of hell fire. Oh, wait, no, maybe it is a big deal. Jesus addresses the heart of the law, not just the letter of the law. He declares that if we harbor malice or hatred, we are already in breach of the sixth commandment. That's why bitterness is such a big deal. Jesus starts talking about things that are an abomination to him, things that he strongly detests. You know what one of the things that are listed is? Them that sow discord among the brethren. Those that are within the in the body of Christ and they're they're backbiting and they're slandering and they're talking bad about one another. Wait a minute. Jesus said that that is tied to this. All the way back to the 10 commandments. We don't we don't think about it. It's so easy for us to fly off at the mouth. Is it any wonder that we read the power of life and death are in the tongue? They're in the tongue. The world is trying to dismantle one another. They're trying to dismantle us as, as believers. People say, well, we don't face persecution in America. And in many ways, we don't. Thank God nobody's trying to burn down our new building. You know, nobody's waiting for us outside to throw things at us or, or attack us. There, there's physical persecution that goes on. But we're in a stage right now in America where the, the attacks that are launched at Christianity are verbal. And it still has the ability to kill. It kills the reputation of the church within the community. It kills the influence of people that are trying to live for God. How so? Most people that wake up on a Sunday morning and, and do their best to live for God and they're faithful to church, that they're not perfect, but they're not blatant hypocrites. Most aren't. But our worldview of Christians, the, the number one thing that they associate with Christianity is hypocritical behavior. Why? Because it's a, a title that the world has spewed at the church for so long that it is begin to erode or kill the reputation of the church. Our words are just as important. The things we say, the things that we, we speak over other people. This is a bigger deal than you think. I got an email 
this week, somebody just on a whim trying to tear one of you down. And it's just foolishness in one ear and out the other. I'm not going to listen to this stuff. We have to be, as the Scripture says, slow to speak. Slow to speak. Everybody that pulls out in front of me is an idiot until the day that I look right at an 18-wheeler and pull out anyways and end up getting broadsided. Mm-hmm. I was the idiot. And these, these traffic, I, I'm using trivial examples, but we have to be careful not to harbor bitterness and hold on to malice. Because when we do, we're in breach of the sixth commandment. Goes on, the seventh commandment says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. We're not to commit adultery. Simply put, sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. It's sin. I don't know why it is, but it is. Maybe it's just because we're we're more used to one. It's been happening publicly longer than the other. But we talk about uh, homosexuality with a, a fervor. When, when we address that sin, there's a, there's a fervor there. How could they do that? And yet, we, we don't approach fornication and adultery with the same fervor sometimes. One's not worse than the other. One sin's not worse than the other sin. It, it's sin. It's sin. Sexual activity outside of the confines of marriage, according to God, is sinful. Though society has accepted it, it is still sinful. In our culture, marriage is in decline. STDs, pregnancy out of wedlock, perversion, these are all things that are on the rise. Now we have terms within our culture like casual sex. Casual sex. People are just hooking up. It's in the Ten Commandments. Just because it's, it's common doesn't mean it's right. It's not right in God's eyes. He views it as sin. Our children, especially our young people, are made to believe that they are less than desirable or completely immature if they are not already engaging in sexual activity. What? You're 14 and you've never done this? Wow, you're 16 and you... You've never experienced that? Wow, what, what's wrong with you? And working with young people for over a decade, it, it's just it's amazing the types of things that kids now face. It was pretty rough when I was in high school. You could probably all look back and think back to your years in school. There was a pressure then. That pressure has continued to build. We better be able to put this within the hearts of our children so that they can withstand the pressures of their culture. They're not immature. They're not less than desirable. If they were less than desirable, the world wouldn't be after their purity so hard. This is, this is sin. This is what the Scripture says. Our culture uses sexual suggestion to sell everything. I mean... You see ads, billboards, and commercials, and things that play. It's like they're selling toothpaste, and there's, there's an element of sex behind it. I mean, you name it. Whatever it is they're trying to sell, 
That's that's what's used to promote it and propagate it and push it out there. This culture and these images make it difficult to fulfill this command because the command goes again beyond the physical act. It's difficult for children of God to live in the world right now and not struggle with this command. Say, well, I'm not running around sleeping with anybody. Let's go back to Matthew 5. We're going to read verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her in his heart. And we understand the masculine terminology of the Scripture, but this verse goes both ways. That's not an out for the ladies. And in times past, this conversation wouldn't even have to be had with the ladies of our society. But it's not that way anymore. We've so sexualized the female culture that it is, it is twisted and perverted their view on things. When you look at studies on even pornography, the, the ratio of viewers is very high among women. So when we start, we start looking at this, it's one thing for God to say, no, you, you can't have sex outside of marriage. The law, that's what the law declared. And so people could abstain maybe from the physical act. Then Jesus comes along and He says, well, actually, if you're looking on and lusting after one another, you've already done this in your heart. Now, I just told you, they use sexual images to sell everything. You can't go anywhere without someone trying, actively trying to get you to break this command. Does that mean that every time I walk through the checkout line of the store and I see an image that catches the attention of my flesh, I've immediately sinned before God? No. But when I choose to dwell on and look at and I walk away and I'm not looking at that image anymore, but it's still playing over in my mind, and then my imagination starts to run away, and I think about, well, if this were to take place, and if that were to take place, and you're committing adultery in your heart. Mm-hmm. We have to be careful what we allow our minds to, to dwell on and what we allow our eyes to see. You're going to see enough things accidentally that you don't need to create more tripping hazards within your own spiritual life. That means the the type of music that I'm listening to, it shouldn't be filled with sexual innuendos and the promotion of fornication. The types of entertainment that I allow before my eyes and the books that I read. There's some raunchy books and and videos. Oh, I'm just, I'm not really doing anything wrong. Just, Just watching. I didn't do it. No, but I'm taking pleasure in them that do. And the Scripture tells me, I won't take the time to go there, that, that I'm guilty when I begin to take pleasure in, in other people's sin. So I've got enough challenges, I've got enough issues trying to obey this commandment w- without going out and buying the bait of Satan and bringing it into my home. Amen? Amen. Amen. Number eight, thou shalt not steal. 
We don't have to have a Hebrew word to understand this command. Don't take what is not rightfully yours. Don't do it. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. This means we don't rob people. We don't sneak things. Try to drill into my kids. Don't, don't sneak stuff. If you've got to hide what you're doing, it's not right. Don't be a sneak. Sneaking is stealing. Cheating is stealing. Don't tweak things to your favor. Here's one that we don't think about as stealing sometimes, but don't hold back what is due other people. When you sign on the dotted line and you say, I'm going to pay you XYZ for this, this service or this item or whatever it is, and then you make a choice. Now, listen. There are times we, we fall on hard times, hardship comes. I'm not talking about the exceptions to the rule. But it wasn't that long ago that our economy went upside down shortly after the housing market was like it is right now. And people made an active decision, I'm just not paying for this house anymore. They still had the ability, but they began to hold back what was due to someone else. The agreement that they made, they were stealing from those companies. And then it progressed, and I was working on some of these homes. People would, would justify that, and then you know where it went next? They would tear holes in the sheetrock and rip the copper wiring out of the walls before they left. Because once you start to steal, it's, <laughs> might as well keep going. We might as well take all the light fixtures when we move out. We might as well take all the doors off the hinge. No, you're stealing. If you have a bill to pay, and it's within your ability to pay it, if you owe someone, you pay that bill. Or it's stealing. Mm -hmm. Certainly don't hold back what belongs to God. I can solidify the point I just made because God used the same example when He talked about people that were withholding the tithe from Him. Book of Malachi. He said, will a man rob God? And they're like, No. So well, you're already robbing me because you're not bringing forth the tithe, the things that belong to me, what you owe to me, what I have declared as mine, the first fruits, that 10%, you're not giving it, therefore you're robbing me of it. Can't hold back what's due to others and certainly what's due to God. I just put this in there to conclude this point. You're standing with God and your integrity are worth more than whatever you would gain. Right. Integrity is valuable. Mm -hmm. I'm still humbled by the, the approach that our bank took to us with our, our church loan. The fact that we didn't pursue it, we didn't look for it, the abstract company was taking a long time to get the, the paperwork together, and they called us and said, listen, we feel like this has taken too long. We're just going to write the loan. To this day, as, as with all the progress we've made and all the draws we've taken, they don't own one piece of collateral to our building. The only reason that's possible is because we have operated with integrity. Mm -hmm. Integrity is far more valuable than whatever you're going to gain from an act of theft. Amen. Thou shalt not steal. Number nine, 
31 minutes. I'll pick, I got two more. We're doing all right. Number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Much like the taking of the Lord's name in vain, this commandment is broken countless times without thought. It's truly a case of, well, everyone's doing it. This is a simple statement. It's a statement we would all agree with. But in, in practice and in culture, it's not viewed as a big deal. If God thought it was a big deal, He put it in the top ten. But we don't think it's a big deal anymore. Telling a lie is still a sin. Lying is a sin. Like, well, is it a big sin? Is it a little sin? It's a sin. It's in the Ten Commandments. The term against thy neighbor does not mean that this commandment only applies and, uh, to lies that are meant to harm or incriminate another person. We get it in our head sometimes. Well, it's just an innocent little lie. It was just a harmless lie. It, didn't, it wasn't meant to hurt anybody. I wasn't trying to harm anyone. God uses this terminology with our sin against Him. Shall not sin against me. Or so-and-so committed a sin against God. When we do things that are sinful, most of us don't sit there and think, how could I hurt God today? If that thought crosses your mind, let's talk because we need to work through that. That's not a common thing. People don't sit around and think of ways to hurt God. Yet we, we cannot commit sin without bringing hurt to God. It hurts God when we sin. In the same way, you cannot lie to someone without hurting them. You can't lie to somebody without being offensive to the individual. It's an insult to their intelligence. It's a lapse of character on our part. It sets them up to follow us into sin. Because they're going to leave and they're going to repeat what you told them. They're going to share the same facts that you gave to them. Now they're lying just like you were lying. That was just a harmless little lie. No, lying, lying is lying. There's no way to, to sugarcoat it. Um, we often disguise them. So I didn't lie. I only told half of the truth. That's a lie. Half-truths are lies. Because what's the other half? There's no third category. Omissions of information are oftentimes lies. It's, it's dishonest. Let's frame it that way. It's dishonesty. Slanted views. You could tell a story about something that happened. You ever notice how two people that are in disagreement tell the same story, but it's completely different? Because you're slanting the view your way, and I'm slanting the view my way, and we're telling the same story, but we're probably both lying to some extent because I want the person that's listening to, to side with me. So when you said... I don't know, I have no examples. But we inflect our voice. We, we say what you said with a little bit more anger, with a little bit more vigor. We put an edge on it. Or we say, yeah, they said this. What they were trying to say is, and we slant that view toward us. It's dishonest. Slanted views. Some lies come masked in good intentions. Good intentions. 
Guys, if you burn the burgers on the grill and you know they're too dry, don't come in and say, honey, weren't those the best burgers you ever had? Didn't I do such a good job grilling those burgers? Don't, don't do that. She's either got to hurt your feelings or lie. Ladies, hurt our feelings. Ladies, don't come in and ask if your outfit looks nice or if we like it or if we noticed anything different or if it makes you look fat. Don't ask those questions. We either got to, if we don't like it, we either got to hurt your feelings or lie. Guys, hurt their feelings. Because it, it doesn't say thou shalt not hurt your spouse's feelings. But it does say we can't lie. Don't, don't set each other up. We got to be smarter than that. If you're going to ask the question, at least be prepared for whatever the answer is. Just, just be ready for it. Number 10, thou shalt not covet. Verse 17 says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. To covet is to long for or have a strong desire for. Um, there's nothing wrong with wanting to better yourself in life. There's nothing wrong with looking at people that are further along than you are in life and saying, you know what, I want to get there one day. There is something wrong with coveting, having such a desire. I want to be, I, I want that house. I should have that house. I should have that. I, I deserve that. This is where we get in trouble with young adults right now because, you know, they graduate from high school and they look at their, their parents' home and their parents' car and their parents' stuff and they go, I should have that. Well, there's nothing wrong with looking at what mom and dad has and saying, man, you know what? If, if they can do it, I can do it. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply myself and I'm going to work toward this. But that's not what happens. Covetousness says, I, I should have it now. Mm -hmm. I, should, I, I deserve that now. I haven't put in the work or the time or the sacrifice, but it should, it should be mine. 1 Kings 21 gives us a front row pass to covetousness in action. Ahab, the king, begins to covet Naboth's vineyard. Oh, I want his vineyard. He's the king. He's got land everywhere. He's got vineyards and olive yards. He's got, he's got everything he could want, but he, he looks down from his balcony, he sees little Naboth's vineyard there, and he says, I, I want that vineyard. I don't want one like it. I don't want one similar. I don't want to know what he did to make it nice like that. I, I want that vineyard. And so he goes to Naboth. He says, listen, Naboth, uh, I, I'd like to have your vineyard. And Naboth likes his vineyard too. And he, essentially he says, no, I, I'm sorry, I can't give you that. So rather than move on with life or take one of his already established pieces of land and begin to put in some effort and make it like Naboth's vineyard, he goes back home, he curls up in the fetal position on the bed, and he won't look at nobody, he won't talk to nobody, he cries and he sucks his thumb. You read it, I'm not exaggerating. Maybe about the sucking his thumb part. That's what he does. He turns himself toward the wall. Oh, I can't have Naboth's vineyard. I just want it so bad. He's coveting Naboth's vineyard. And so Jezebel, his wife, comes in. What's wrong, honey? Oh, Naboth said, I, he, he said no. And I want it so bad. So she begins to covet Naboth's vineyard. 
Naboth, he's the king. You, she has the man killed. So that little, old, little Ahab could have his little vineyard. And then we never read about him anything else with the vineyard. You know why? Because once he had it, it probably wasn't everything he thought it would be. It didn't make him as happy as he... He wasn't like, now I'm, I'm finally complete. I'm the king and I have Naboth's vineyard. That's how covetousness works. Somehow it gets in. It's like a seed that, that takes root. And we're like, oh, I just got to have it. I just, that's the only thing in life that can make me happy. If I just get that thing, if I just get that achievement, if I just have that, if I just, if I just had a spouse like that, if my kids would just behave like theirs, if, if I could just live in that neighborhood, if I, and then all of a sudden we get there and we're like, oh, <laughs> this, is, this is all? That's what social media is like. We look at the best of everybody else and we're like, oh, man. If I just had everything they had, if my life was going just like theirs, if I was in their shoes, and then we end up in their shoes and we're like, huh, still not satisfied. Because now I'm looking at somebody else's vineyard. And it's better than the vineyard I have now. And covetousness, it, it, it never quits. It doesn't relent. It just keeps driving you further and further, listen to this, away from, away from God. Hebrews 13.5 Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have for he had said i will never leave you nor forsake you when we allow a spirit of covetousness to to overtake us it screams to jesus you're not enough i need that to be happy God's there. He's in your life. He's walking with you. He's living with you. He says, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm, I'm with you till the end. And we go, yeah, yeah, that's great. But man, if I could have that, boy, I'd be happy. And we go chasing after covetousness. And, and all the while, God's saying, I, I mean, I'm all you need. I'm your peace. I'm your joy. I'm your rest. I'm your power. I'm, I'm everything you need. And we're like, no, 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 no. I mean, I'm glad you're here and all, but, but if I had that car, I'm glad you're here and all, but, but when, I, when I get that raise, whatever it is, we covet after things and really we're, we're screaming into the face of God, you're, you're not enough. You're inadequate. I'm discontent with you and what you've provided. That's why it says, thou shalt not covet. Notice there's a trend there at the end. Shall not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. Just, just one-liners. And then when he gets to covetousness, he makes sure he lays a good foundation. Not your neighbor's house, not your neighbor's wife, not your neighbor's animals, not your neighbor's service. Not, nothing. Jesus says, I'm all you need. Contentment. I'm going to close with the chapter of 2 Corinthians verse 3. You can follow me on the screen. That's going to be King James. I'm going to read it in the Amplified. Because this is, this is where we live. This is the law that was delivered to Moses. And it remains the foundation of the Christian lifestyle. This is where Jesus took it to. Because it didn't stay there. <clears throat> Are we starting to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some false teachers, letters of recommendation to you or from you? No. You are our letters of recommendation. 
written in our hearts, recognized and read by everyone. So the apostles are saying, we don't need some flattering letter from someone else to validate us as true preachers. The lifestyle you're living as a result of our teaching is our validation. Verse 3 says, <coughs> You show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tables of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence and steadfast reliance and absolute trust that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficiently qualified in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency and qualifications come from God. He has qualified us, making us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant of salvation through Christ, not of the letter of a written code, but of the Spirit. For the letter of the law kills by revealing sin and demanding obedience, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death engraved in the letters on stones, the covenant of the law, which led to the death because of sin, came with such glory and splendor that the Israelites were not able to look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, a brilliance, that was fading. How will the ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant, which allows us to be Spirit-filled, fail to be even more glorious and splendid? For if the ministry that brings condemnation, the old covenant, the law, has glory, how much more does glory overflow in the ministry that brings righteousness, the new covenant which declares believers free of guilt and sets them apart from God's special purpose? Indeed, what had glory, the law, in this case no longer has glory because of the glory that surpasses it, the gospel. For if the law which fades came with glory, how much more must that gospel which remains and is permanent abide in glory and splendor. Since we have such a glorious hope and confident expectation, we speak with great courage. And we, not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the Israelites would not gaze at the end of the glory, which was fading away, but in fact, their minds were hardened. For they had lost the ability to understand. For unto this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed only in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil of blindness lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns in repentance and faith to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, emancipation from bondage and true freedom. And we, with unveiled face, continually seeing as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are progressively being transformed into His image from one degree of glory even to even more glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The writers are saying there was a time in which the law was given. 
and the letter of the law only had the ability to condemn because flesh consistently had fallen to sin. And so when they would come in contact and God delivered the law and, and all the people were there, we already talked about this one. I mean, the first time Moses brought the, the law down, he slams it on the ground and breaks it into pieces because they, the people had already messed up. The letter of the law only produced condemnation in their life. You're guilty. See, you did this and you did this and you did that and you did, and you're guilty. Every one of you are guilty. So you got to go out and you got to find these animals. You got to follow these things, and, and it'll cover your sin for a little while. It'll it'll roll your sin forward. And there's this there's this progression, and it never changes the individual. It just deals with the consequences of what they were condemned for. The writer here says. No longer is it just on tablets of stone, but, but now God has begun to write on the fleshly tables of the heart. When we turn to God in repentance, when we experience the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection, we're baptized in Jesus' name, we're filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, God begins to take the, the heartbeat of what was given in the law and instill it into the heart of man. So when he was standing in on the Sermon on the Mount and he was teaching, listen, it goes beyond just, just not sleeping around. It, it has to do with what you think and how you feel. Yes. That's what the Holy Ghost does in us. Amen. It's like, no, it's not just about stealing it. It's about how I treat other people. and it, It's about how I conduct myself in public. and It's about my standing before God. It, it, it's more than just making sure I'm not condemned by the law. It's getting inside of me. And the more it gets inside of me, the more I follow after the Spirit. Like the Scripture said, I'm progressively changed to become more and more like Jesus. More and more. Now it's not condemnation. We still need the law. We don't say, oh, that's, see, this is all Old Testament. It doesn't matter anymore. It's just, it's just the law. I'm just living under it. I'm just skipping through the tulips. And, you know, I live under Jesus and I live under grace. That's not what He said. Jesus says, I haven't come to abandon the law, I've come to fulfill the law. Right. said, my teachings are going to go above and beyond the law. It's going to change who you are. See, when all we had, when all humanity had was the law, we could look at this and we could abstain from the physical act, but we would remain the same physical person. But through the infilling of God's Spirit, He, he transforms me. He renews my mind. He changed it. No longer am I, am I burdened by these things because when I used to be a person that wanted to kill with my words and I wanted to be angry and I wanted to have all these problems, now through the work of the Holy Ghost, I no longer desire to do those things. Yes. It's not just about abstaining from it. I'm going to be a good Christian. I'm going to have enough discipline. No, I, I don't need enough discipline. I need enough Jesus. Yeah. I need enough Holy Ghost. Yeah. I need enough power of God living inside of me changing who I was, changing who the flesh tries to make me to be. Because it's when God begins to write on this fleshly tablet right here that I can live according to what He expects. I can live according to what He desires. Because He changes me. And I go from glory to glory. I like how the, the Amplified said it. It, it was a, a glory that never ends. You know, Moses came down from that mountain and his face was shining and he put the veil on. But that glory faded after a little while. The glory of the gospel never fades. The glory of the power of God living inside is never going to fade away. Time doesn't, doesn't 
zap it and, and steal away from its glory. No, it continues to get brighter and brighter and brighter and we become more and more and more like Jesus. We're going to take some time and, and pray. I know I've preached a little longer than I normally do today, but I think we've got a few minutes to, to pray and ask God to help us. Sometimes, this is why I'm, I'm kind of just hanging out here for a minute. We know we don't live in the Old Testament any longer. We understand we walk after the Spirit. But sometimes we, we try to live this life under those same parameters. We've got our little checklist. And we know God said we can do this and we can't do that. And, we, and if we just meet all, the, all this criteria. And, and we try to, of our own accord and of our own strength, be good little Christians. Instead of relying on the power of God. We say, God, help me not to do that. Instead of, God, help, help me not to think that way. Help me not to long after those things anymore. I want, I want that part of me to die out. I want you to have control over that area of my life. I keep finding myself pulled down the same path. It, it just... The apostle says that there's, there's sins that so easily beset us. We've all got different little things that it's just... All it takes is a, is a little pull and we find ourselves tempted stronger than other areas of life. But God, I don't, want, I don't want it to be like that anymore. I'm not strong enough to consistently withstand that. I, I can't always uh, put up a strong enough barricade to hold that temptation back. Can you change me? Can you help me be more like you? When we start changing our prayer to, instead of, God, help me not to do that. To God, help me not to be like that. Help me not desire that. The Lord begins to do things in our life. We progressively become more like Him. That's the opportunity we have today. The last two weeks, if we've gone through any of these things and, you, and it struck a chord, you say, oh man, maybe I'm, maybe I'm dealing with that. That's the prayer to pray today. God, help me not to be like that. I don't want to go down that path. I don't want to go down that road. I'm, I'm making available the tablet of my heart today. And I'm asking you, I'm asking you to write on it. If you've never received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, today's a good day to get the Holy Ghost. Very simply, it's God's Spirit living inside of you. You repent of your sins. You acknowledge your faults before God and ask Him for forgiveness. You begin to worship Him. He will fill, fill you with His Spirit. Amen. You will begin to speak in another tongue that you do not know as a sign to you. As a sign to you, because when that happens, there's no devil in hell. There's no stranger on the street that convinced you well, that wasn't real. <laughs> oh, you want to bet? I was there. I said those things. I heard it myself. I feel the change. God can fill you with the Holy Ghost today. That's the new covenant that I'm preaching about. I'm going to get out of your way. I'm going to let you pray. Seek after God today. Thank you for listening to our podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this message. Remember, if you'd like to find out more information about our church or to contact us, please go online to fergusunited.org. And also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. That way you will be automatically notified of our new episodes. Thank you very much, and we hope you have a great week. God bless you.